0: Good health is a crown worn by the healthy that only the ill can see. Your health really is your wealth. Join us for the next hour as we explore disease and attaining and maintaining good health. This is Dischem Medical Monday, brought to you by Dischem, pharmacists who care. Welcome to
1: Dischem Medical Monday. I'm your host, Dean Gerson. We are very lucky to be joined today by Dr. Ian Berkovitz, who is a gastroenterologist in private practice at NetCare Milk Hospital. Thank you, Dr. Berkovitz, for joining us today,
2: for taking out your time to speak to us live. Thanks, Dean. Thanks for inviting me to this uh, program and to speak to all of you. Thanks so much.
1: Okay. Thank you. I saw uh, on your intro that you're very passionate about uh, all things uh, gastrointestinal, very wide, uh, uh, very wide field of interest, and we are going to. What do you want to? Should we work anatomically from upper to lower, or does well, that work well?
2: Well, we can do that. We can work from upper to lower and uh, consider some of the more common conditions that occur in gastroenterology. We clearly can't cover everything, but sure. uh, we can cover the major the major aspects of gastroenterology. And hopefully give some tips to the, to the public to, uh, help themselves with regards to gastro, um, intestinal problems themselves. Fantastic. Yeah. I mean, I agree. Obviously we
1: want to talk about uh, some of the problems um, the common problems and also like screening and, uh, for certain malignities, which I think is very important as well. So why don't we go ahead. Uh, we said we we're going to speak a little bit about gastroesophageal reflux so you speak to anyone almost these days and it seems like that they are on a proton pump inhibitor I'm on XM on my I'm on, on pantalock I have I have reflux why is reflux so what first of all what is reflux gastric reflux and
2: why is it so common these days or is it being over over diagnosed? Well I don't think it's been over diagnosed a large uh, percentage of the population suffer from heartburn which is basically a burning feeling from the pit of the stomach radiating upwards into the esophagus. And uh, if this occurs more than twice a week, one could call it gastroesophageal reflux disease. So in other words, heartburn can manifest as a disease if it occurs more frequently. And often the heartburn is related to certain foods, certain uh, times of eating, and if patients are overweight, then they suffer more from heartburn. We know that the function of the esophagus is to propel food that's eaten from the from the mouth down into the stomach uh, via the um, esophageal sphincter, the low esophageal sphincter. And um, when the low esophageal sphincter is weak or incompetent, stomach acid may then reflux up back into the esophagus. Causing this heartburn. And the problem is that. The heartburn can can cause. Disruption to quality of life. But not only that. It could cause damage to the esophagus. And can cause a condition. Called reflux esophagitis. And reflux esophagitis. Can be graded in various grades. From A to D. According to a classification. Called the LA classification. So, um, and if damage continues, you can even get a change in the lining of the esophagus called Barrett's esophagus, which is a pre-malignant condition and should be monitored much more thoroughly, a pre-cancerous condition. And uh, patients can also develop things like esophageal strictures, which result in difficulty in swallowing and, uh, and uh, sticking of food. Okay, we're going to take a short ad break, and then when we come back, we'll talk a bit more about uh,
0: gastroesophageal reflux disease and reflux esophageal. This is Medical Monday brought to you with compliments of DISCAM, pharmacists who care.
1: Right, Dr. Beckham, it's back to gastroesophageal reflux disease. So the esophagus, the esophagus isn't made for handling acid, is that correct? And no, when the acid not. comes up, it isn't made to handle acid.
2: Say again, is there is the esophagus made to handle acid? Well, it's not made to handle anything that refluxes up. It's not meant to handle um, food content or uh, digestive enzymes like pepsin or even bile. But acid is the main uh, the main uh, substance that refluxes up. And as so I mean,
1: sorry, carry on. So the 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 esophagus then.
2: Um, has certain changes in response to the acid that's refluxing up. Absolutely. What happens is that you get inflammation of the esophagus, and as I mentioned, you may get this change called Barrett's esophagus, which is a change in the lining of the esophagus from uh, um, a certain type of lining to a columnar lining, a squamous lining to a columnar. And that is a, a precancerous condition and should be monitored and biopsied and followed up uh, on a more or less a yearly basis, depending on the, the nature of the abnormality.
1: What happens if you leave it? What, what well, happens to Barrett's esophagus if, if it's not treated well, or monitored properly?
2: M- most Barrett's esophagus seems to remain stable, but there are a percentage of patients who can develop a cancer of the esophagus, which is a very, very serious condition and very difficult to treat, and requires surgery, radiation, uh, and uh, maybe just palliative treatment. So it's not an ideal situation. So you have to really treat the gastroesophageal reflux adequately. And uh, the cornerstone of treatment is lifestyle changes. So it's best if people lose weight. Even if uh, a small reduction of weight of three or four kilograms, it will help the reflux enormously. Eating smaller meals, particularly in the evening is a, is a win because uh, you don't reflux at night. You shouldn't really lie down after eating for at least an hour and a half to two hours after eating your evening meal. And you should avoid foods that in fact cause the reflux and patients will know what foods cause that. So they must avoid those kind of food. But really the, the main thing is weight reduction, eating early, sitting up and eating smaller meals. And then there's medical treatment. The basic medical treatment are antacids, and we all know the antacids like Gaviscon and Marlox and uh, Rennies. People take those by the ton. And then there's the more sophisticated treatment. There used to be uh, H2 receptor blockers, but those are out of date now. Now we use proton inhibitors which inhibit the proton pump that produces the acid. And by inhibiting the acid, there's no more acid to reflux up. And the most common ones are the pantoprazole and the nexiums, which you mentioned previously.
1: Okay, so now why is uh, weight loss uh, or why why being overweight, why is it such an issue? Why does it cause uh,
2: reflux? Well, what happens is that because you have increased pressure on your abdominal uh, cavity by the weight, when you lie down particularly, it seems to loosen the lower esophageal sphincter. It allows food, to, uh, food and acid to reflux up more easily. So losing weight is just a, a, a good way of improving it by yourself. So weight reduction is important and important for all other illnesses. It's, previously been discussed on your program, diabetes, cardiac disease, and all those other illnesses. So weight reduction is fundamental.
1: Okay, brilliant. So now let's move a little bit uh, further down into the stomach. We said we're going to talk about peptic ulcer
2: disease. Do people with peptic ulcer disease present with the same symptoms? They present with different symptoms. They present with symptoms of upper abdominal or epigastric pain and uh, nausea sometimes vomiting and there are two kinds of peptic ulcer disease there's a gastric ulcer which is a sore or an open wound in the lining of the stomach or a duodenal ulcer which is a sore or wound in the upper part of the small intestine or the duodenum. and patients present with slightly different symptoms so patients with gastric ulcers tend to have pain when they eat so their pain occurs when eating and may also wake them up at night or in the early evening whereas patients with duodenal ulcers tend to have pain when hungry and eating seems to relieve their pain so it's different from a gastric ulcer and also they definitely have episodes of night waking with the pain Often uh, in the middle, 3 a.m., middle of the night, they wake with epigastric or up abdominal discomfort and they go downstairs or go to the fridge and have a glass of milk and something to eat and it helps the discomfort. So there are two different kinds of peptic ulcers, a gastric ulcer and a duodenal ulcer. But what's common amongst them is the causes of, uh, of peptic ulcer disease. And the most common cause that we found is a bacteria called helicobacter pylori, and that's the most common cause of both gastric and duodenal ulcers. The second most common cause is anti-inflammatory usage, okay, so uh, drugs such as Brufen, uh, cataflam, uh, aspirin-containing compounds, anything like grandpa, uh, anadodin, all contain aspirin these cause ulceration usually of the stomach and sometimes of the duodenum these are the most important causes of peptic ulcer disease and uh, once you've diagnosed it and you diagnose it by gastroscopy which is uh, we'll discuss a little later um putting a, a scope down inside the stomach and uh, uh taking biopsies to look for the helicobacter uh, you usually treat the peptic ulcer with a six to eight week course of uh, a proton pump inhibitor, such as Nexium and Pantoloc or, or various generics. And if you have Helicobacter, then you go on to a course of antibiotics, uh, which is usually a triple triple therapy. And now we've added another drug called denol. And it takes two weeks to usually get rid of that bacteria now. Okay, what is in that drug that, that you know? Well, it's a bismuth. It's an old drug called bismuth. Ah, yes, that's bad. Yes, no, it well, tell them to swallow it and then they can prevent the ulcer. All right, so we're going to take another short
1: ad break and we'll be back with
0: Dr. Ian Hi, FM 101.9 megahertz of life.
3: It's the most spectacular time to save at Diskem's Beauty Fair. Get 2 plus 1 cheapest free on these two great brands. African Extracts Roy Boss Face Care or any user and dermatologist recommended skincare. Plus, get your free Maybelline gift when you purchase any Maybelline color cosmetics to the value of 265 rand or more. Spectacular savings at Beauty Fair now on. Diskem. Pharmacists who care. This is Medical
0: Monday, brought to you with compliments of Discam. Pharmacists who care.
1: Welcome back to Discam Medical Monday. I'm your host, Dean Gersten. We're speaking to gastroenterologist of the Inverurds, and uh, we are discussing common gastrointestinal problems. We've spoken about. We've spoken about peptic ulcer disease and now we're going to talk a bit about inflammatory bowel disease moving a bit lower into the gastrointestinal tract or I guess it can uh, present all the way from the mouth down to the anus and that's always talked about Crohn's. Is it the start of Crohn's and ulcerative colitis or any other inflammatory bowel disease that when you talk about it, and do you want to maybe give us an introduction to that?
2: Okay, well, uh, let's just talk about Crohn's and ulcerative colitis. These are the two most common and well-known or best-known inflammatory bowel disease. Uh, uh, They both seem to be autoimmune diseases. They're not quite sure of the etiology, and nobody's really worked out what causes these diseases to occur. Uh, Crohn's disease usually affects the last part of the small intestine called the terminal ileum. So you get uh, terminal ileitis, which is inflammation of the terminal ileum. You can get punched out ulcers. But in fact, uh, Crohn's can occur anywhere in the gastrointestinal tract, higher up in the small intestine or in fact in the colon as well. And the symptoms usually include abdominal cramps as a main symptom, diarrhea and weight loss. So that's usually the symptom complex of Crohn's disease. And as you know, uh, many patients probably listening have got Crohn's disease uh, of their, of their intestines. The other important inflammatory bowel disease is ulcerative colitis, which, is, which only affects the large intestine or the colon. And patients with ulcerative colitis present somewhat differently from Crohn's disease. They present with a bloody diarrhea, which you don't usually get with Crohn's disease. And there may be mucus in the stool and abdominal pain. And they also experience weight loss. There are other kinds of uh, types of inflammatory bowel disease called microscopic colitis, um, which are, which look completely normal when you, when you scope the patient. But when you take biopsies, they show up this microscopic inflammation, which is below the surface of the uh, lining of the bowel. There's also a condition called collagenous colitis, which is a thickening of one of the layers of the colon and also causes quite profound diarrhea. So these are the slightly different or variations of uh, inflammatory bowel disease. So shall I talk about the treatment? Yeah, how... please do. Please talk about the treatment of it. So that the, the treatment diagnosis of... and treatment. I okay. guess. Yeah, the treatment of inflammatory bowel disease obviously uh, requires an accurate diagnosis, and one has to exclude infectious conditions. So you have to send off specimens of stool for uh, bacteria to look for parasites, and an important condition called Clostridium difficile which is a bacterial infection that occurs often with overuse of antibiotics. And that causes quite an ongoing and profound diarrhea. And it's often quite difficult to treat. So, um, you require um, to exclude those infection infectious conditions before you embark upon treatment. And the mainstay of treatment is steroids. Now at this point in time with COVID steroids are not contraindicated but are sort of represent a risk because of uh, COVID making patients more susceptible to this viral infection. So people are reluctant to start steroids but uh, if you have to you have to. Steroids you mean cortisone? Just cortisone, like, yeah, cortisone. Yeah. Yeah. Other agents have been used, called uh, 5-ASA, 5-amino salicylic acids, such as Asacol and Pentasa, and these are uh, used to treat usually ulcerative colitis, not really for Crohn's disease. And they've also been, and these are pretty safe in terms of uh, COVID. And uh, then there are immune-modulating drugs such as uh, azathioprine or Imuran, which are also a bit questionable in a time of COVID, but uh, often necessary to to modulate the immune response. So, a lot of patients have don't respond to the conventional treatment, and uh, biological treatment or biologic agents have been introduced. And the two most commonly used ones are agents called uh anti-TNF or anti-tumor necrosis factor agents. And the two most common ones are Humira, which is adulinumab, and Revelex, which is infliximab. And these have uh, sort of revolutionized the treatment of uh, inflammatory bowel disease. But again, it's not a 100%. And in fact, newer and newer biological agents are coming on stream. And in fact, there are two new agents that have been uh, launched at this time, one for ulcerative colitis called vedolizumab and uh, and one for Crohn's called ustekinumab both of these are now available and uh these appear to be more gut sensitive or more gut specific with less side effects and the response to these agents have been uh, quite good and uh they are now available if you can get it past uh the medical aids.
1: Okay, that's a
2: whole other story uh,
1: itself. Yes. Okay, and uh, which patients have you really seen? Uh, who is susceptible, or who presents with um, these inflammatory bowel diseases, Crohn's, Crohn's, and ulcerative colitis? What's your usual typical patient profile?
2: Well, the typical patient is a is a younger patient, I would say, more in the more in the twenties. Uh, those those are the patients that usually present. And, uh, I think both male and females get it, so it's, there's no sex difference. Um and there's nothing, nothing specific, although it is quite common amongst the Jewish population as we know. But other okay. than that, it's, it's fairly widespread and, uh, you know, it's nothing specific. <sighs> On. Moving,
1: moving f- further down uh, towards the colon. Well, we've spoken about ulcerative colitis, which was in the colon. Now something, um, feels very important. I'm sure you do is, uh,
2: screening for colon cancer and colon polyps. Yeah. Well, that's vitally important. And, uh, obviously in the time of COVID, this, uh, screening or the screening that we were doing has taken a bit of a back seat because people are terrified of coming to hospital because they're scared they're going to pick up COVID and they, they're they worried about being exposed to medical staff and healthcare workers. So uh, screening has really, really become uh, um, sort of on the back uh, burner at the moment. But the problem is that one wants to diagnose colon cancer before it's colon cancer. Because the symptoms of colon cancer only appear when the cancer is advanced. So you really want to prevent it from developing. The main symptoms of colon cancer are blood in the stool, uh, usually sort of ready dark blood, a change in the bowel habit. So you can either be from a regular person once a day to having alternating constipation or diarrhea or Diarrhea by itself, sort of unexplained. Also, unexplained anemia. You have elderly patients presenting, or middle-aged patients presenting with, with loss of blood, and they don't know where it's coming from. Uh, in addition, there's weight loss, where you have unexplained weight loss. And also, at a very late stage, you really have abdominal pain. So, these are advanced symptoms, which are worrying and really should be prevented by having uh, screening. So screening is really by there are a couple of methods, but the gold standard and the one that we use as gastroenterologists is doing colonoscopies. So we do um, the test where we insert a colon- colonoscope through the back passage around the colon, looking at all. Aspects of the colon going to the bottom of the colon and into the small intestine, into that terminal ileum. So it's recommended that routine screening start at the age of 50. And that's uh, for all comers, males and females, um, 50 years old at the time. In some countries, they even recommend it five years early. I think in the United States, they recommended at 45 that you start, uh, screening. A caveat to that is if a family member, a first degree relative, uh, either a mother, a father, a brother or a sister has colon cancer, then one should start the screening 10 years before the index case. So if your family member has it, then you do it 10 years before, or you can start by the age of 40. And really what we're looking for is, is we're looking for colonic polyps, which are polyps in the colon, and the specific kind of polyps are adenomatous polyps, because those are precancerous polyps. And if you remove those, then it's unlikely that you're going to develop a cancer in that polyp.
1: Okay, so can you tell us just about maybe, I think, um, well, just according to uh, many laymen, I guess, for patients, people are scared of going for these scopes. Do you want to maybe describe like what the day is like or what the procedure is like? Maybe take some of the mystery and the fear away from going for a scope.
2: So um, the scopes are conducted um, after the patients have a COVID test. You have to have a COVID test within 48 hours of the of the uh, procedure. And that's done, um, either through the nose, the usual standard or through the mouth. And they, and, uh, only if the patient has a negative COVID test will they come for a, a procedure for a, either colonoscopy or a gastroscopy or if they're lucky enough, both. So, um, the patients then prepare the following day. Um, for the procedure, they do the bowel preparation, which requires being on a fluid diet usually and taking a bowel preparation. So are various forms, uh, I start in at about two o'clock in the afternoon and they drink uh, several liters of fluid and flush out the bowel so that you can see clearly from the rectum right to the cecum and into the terminal ileum because the cleaner the bowel, the easier it is to do and the safer it is to do in that you won't miss lesions if you look carefully and slowly. So the patient then comes in on the day of the procedure in the morning and he's taken to a general ward, which is obviously a non-COVID ward, distant from any COVID patients. And then he's taken down to the theatre, and in the theatre they are uh, sedated by I use it, an anaesthetist or you, to sedate them, and uh, everybody is gowned up. Everybody in the theatre is gowned up. They have a N95 mask on. They wear visors. They wear headgear. They wear aprons, and they wear double gloves. And all the all the instruments are thoroughly sterilized before use. I love the way, sorry, please carry on. I love the way that you
1: are um, absolutely reassuring patients of the personal protective equipment and the safety of these procedures. Because uh, something we've been seeing as well, I think, across all disciplines is that people are staying away from doctors beca- and hospitals because they are scared of obviously getting the virus. But uh, the result of this is that they're neglecting certain diseases or ailments, and especially uh, screening
2: um, screening procedures. Well, I think that's the point. You see, I think lots of cancers are going to be missed because patients are uh, not coming, and I think it's not only colonic uh, cancers, but all other cancers, lung, breast, you name it. They patients are neglecting, and it's and it's well documented. In fact, I think in Europe and the United States, that these other lesions are being, are being overlooked because of COVID. And uh, obviously, the earlier you pick up these lesions, the better survival. In fact, if you pick up a colon cancer early, if you pick it up at uh, Duke's A, an early stage, there's over 90% survival uh, being reported. So survival is strongly re- related to the stage of the disease. But in fact, we don't even want them to get colon cancer. We just want to pick up the polyps, which are the precancerous lesions, and remove the polyps and get rid of those. And those are very easily done by using uh, the scope and removing it through uh, snares, uh, endoscopic snares, and uh, taking off the polyps. Really very easy. Okay, so, so you've,
1: you've, you've assured us now... Um, of the the safety, and you've uh, emphasised the importance of having this. What what is the the wake up like of the procedure? Patients, you said you use an anaesthetist. General patients won't remember the procedures. They're correct. And how long are they in the hospital after that?
2: Well, the the sedation it's basically just sedation. So they use uh, propofol and uh, a bit of dormicum. And in fact, at the end of the procedure, they are awake. So 95 percent of patients are awake at the end of the procedure, unless they wake up a little bit before the end, and then he has to give them a little bit of extra, you know. So yeah, but um, still, when they wake
1: up, that's medical. It's not waking up that they'll remember and see right. It's just
2: uh... no, no, no. They they wake up and then they uh, go to uh, a, a wake up area to the res- to the recovery area. And then from there, they go back to the ward where they're given a cup of tea or coffee or whatever, maybe a sandwich or something to eat. And then I go and see them uh, about two to three hours later and tell them what we found. Usually in the past, there was somebody with them. In this COVID time, there's nobody with them. But for the most part, most people seem to remember uh what I've told them. And if they don't, they phone me the following day. Okay. So,
1: it's, so it's a day, uh, day procedure that
2: they come in. It's a day and, procedure. Uh, you're in for about, you're in for about five, five to six hours max. Okay, and it sounds very low risk as well, very safe. Well, we certainly hope so. I mean, it's never had a problem, so it's a, Sure,
1: sure. And uh, that was uh, more about
2: the, the colonoscopy. Do you always do a gastroscopy and upper scope at the same time? Not always. I mean, if somebody comes for a screening colonoscopy and they have no upper gastrointestinal symptoms, then it's a discussion whether they would like one or whether it's indicated. It's I mean, it's you don't always do the two together, but there's certain problems that you would do it, like anemia. If you had anemia and was unexplained, Then you would do a gastroscopy and a colonoscopy to exclude the possibility of an upper GI problem. So you would do both. So, um, but I think uh, I think screening colonoscopy is just I think it's just a must, you know, for for most people. Yeah, thank you. I think you
1: you really have uh, uh, emphasized that. Okay, we're going to take another short ad break, and then maybe we can talk about uh, irritable bowel syndrome, some other our
0: problems. Join us right. in a few minutes. High FM, 101.9 megahertz of life.
1: Welcome back to Just Care Medical Monday. I'm your host, Dr. Dean Gerson. We are busy chatting to Dr. Ian Berkovitz, specialist gastroenterologist at Neck Park Hospital. Uh, we're going to move on and speak now about irritable bowel syndrome. The word irritable makes as if your bowel almost has a personality.
2: Well, I think the bowel is part of one's personality. I think, uh, as the heart is a seat of emotion, so I think the bowel is, uh, has, uh, reflects your personality as well.
1: Sure. If you've so, got an irritable bowel,
2: maybe an irritable person. You may well be, in fact. And, uh, we know that this is a very common condition and causes ongoing symptoms of abdominal pain bloating diarrhea or constipation and a change in bowel habits i mean patients come complaining of abdominal bloating and pain um as as a presenting um a symptom which uh is much more common than any of the other symptoms and it appears that irritable bowel syndrome is a functional disorder of the gastrointestinal tract in other words after extensive testing one rarely finds any major or any pathology in the in the gastrointestinal tract and the causes of irritable bowel are really unclear nobody really knows what causes irritable bowel syndrome but you have to exclude certain conditions that do cause those kind of symptoms of bloating, pain, diarrhea, constipation. And the the conditions one really has to exclude are lactose intolerance, which is a milk intolerance, as people know. You have to exclude a condition called small bowel bacterial overgrowth, which is an overgrowth of bacteria in the small intestine, which causes some of these unpleasant symptoms. And, Celiac disease, which is a gluten or wheat intolerance, and uh, this you do by doing certain blood tests looking for antibodies against wheat or doing a biopsy of the small intestine and looking for damage to the little fronds or villi in the small intestine. The treatment of irritable bowel syndrome is really not easy because it's uh, multifactorial. It requires different aspects and it includes avoiding certain foods that cause the symptoms and various diets have been proposed. People have eliminated all sorts of foods, particularly wheat and milk and dairy. And then the new diet put forward by uh, Monash University in Melbourne was the FODMAP diet, which is eliminating uh, various uh, fermentable saccharides or fermentable sugars. And it uh, seems to work, but it's so difficult to do that you can only use it for a limited period. And then people try various probiotics, and there's a whole host on the shelves various antispasmodics have been tried and also various uh, neuroleptic agents the most common one used is uh, trepoline, which uh, which is quite widely used and quite helpful so irritable bowel is a vexing problem because it needs investigation to exclude pathology or uh, disease but uh, often a cause cannot be found. Okay, so it's a diagnosis of exclusion, So correct? A diagnosis by exclusion, correct. Okay, and how do
1: patients do? you just got to carry on off, trying different uh, treatments until you see which ones they settle on.
2: Well, yeah, some do settle and some settle very well, and it's, uh, it's a win if you, if you hit upon a, a cause like a lactose intolerance or something like that. But often they just niggle on and it comes and goes and they go from doctor to doctor and so it goes. But they do eventually seem to settle down with age and it often happens to, to youngsters, to people in their 20s, teen years, 20s, and it settles down after after time.
1: Is there a component of anxiety? Um, I, know, I mean, I heard that you use tripline or some... And um, I don't know if it's neuroleptics or the correct word for it, but uh, is there?
2: Well, um... well, they they have found that there is some aspects of uh, of uh, psychological problems associated with some some patients, and there's no no question that uh, anti anxiety medication works. And in fact, one of the older drugs was Librex, which had. Uh, um, librium in it, which was a tranquilizer, so it was an anti-spasmodic and a tranquilizer combined, and it often helped and worked in a lot of patients. But uh, I think the I think the agent of choice now is is trepoline, which seems to help some of the symptoms. Yeah. Okay.
1: All right. Fine. Let's uh, move on to a, a little bit lower. Um, well, I guess uh, in part of the gastrointestinal tract. Diverticulosis. A lot of people here, uh, that their grand has diverticular, diverticulitis, diverticulosis. Can you tell exactly, exactly what is a
2: diverticulum and what is diverticular disease? So, so diverticulum is, uh, like a little pouch or a small pocket that forms in the wall of the colon. So it's like a little bleb, like a blowout of the colon. Um, and about 50% of people by the age of 60 seem to have diverticular disease and it seems to increase as you get older. So 50, 60, 70% by the age of 80 have diverticular disease. It's very, very common, especially in the older population, but it can occur in young people. I've seen it in people in the 30s who We've got diverticular disease. They start off uh, in the thirties and it causes a pain, bloating and can even cause quite significant rectal bleeding and uh, it usually occurs on the left side of the colon you get multiple studying of these pockets on the left side of the colon but some people can also get it on the right side of the colon which causes a lot of confusion with uh, appendicitis if it. they haven't had their yeah. if they haven't had their appendix out so it's a bit confusing as to uh, as to the symptomatology but uh the rectal bleeding is usually a painless rectal bleed you, the patient produces quite large volumes of uh, maroon colored stool and it can be fairly profuse but it usually settles in about 90% of of patients but the doctor, your doctor should be contacted immediately if this occurs because it can be profuse and you can lose a lot of blood. Now the other problem of diverticular disease is you can get inflammation of the diverticulum called diverticulitis. And this is also a problem because it causes quite intense and severe pain on the left side of the colon usually. And uh, The diverticulum can become inflamed and you can even develop an abscess called the diverticular abscess. And even worse than that, you can develop a perforation of the diverticulum resulting in peritonitis, which which requires hospitalization and intravenous antibiotics and quite intensive treatment. And the problem is that there's no obvious treatment for diverticular disease by itself. So there's uh, you live with it or else you have surgery to remove the section of the bowel that's inf- involved. But uh, generally, uh, one lives with it and uh, keeps the bowel regular so that you don't get clogging up of these little pockets. And uh, you may use antispasmodics as well for some of the discomfort and symptoms. So okay. it, it, it does represent a common problem.
1: Okay, we're
3: going to
0: take our final ad break and then we'll sum up with Dr. Ian Berkowitz. Hi FM, your station of choice since 2008.
3: It's the most spectacular time to save at Discams Beauty Fair. Get 2 plus 1 cheapest free on these two great brands. LA Girl's gorgeous on-trend color cosmetics or any Pond's face care for softer radiant skin. Plus, get your free gift from Essence when you purchase any three Essence color cosmetics, one being a foundation or powder. Spectacular savings at Beauty Fair. Now on Discam pharmacists who care.
0: This is Medical Monday brought to you with compliments of Discam Pharmacist who care.
1: Welcome back to Discam Medical Monday to your final few minutes. I'm your host, Ian Ders, who is speaking to Dr. Ian Berkowitz, who is a specialist, gastroenterologist at NACM of hospital. Ian, uh, yeah, something that you just touched on at the end, you said with the diverticular disease you get uh, a rectal bleed. Can you maybe just uh, take us through for a couple of minutes about um, rectal bleeding, when to panic, when not to panic, and uh, who to cover, I mean, who to, who to contact and when?
2: Okay, so just to talk about some of the Red flags or danger signs in gastroenterology what what patients should never ignore if they've got these symptoms okay and and rectal bleeding or blood in the stool is one of the the danger symptoms, one of the leading danger symptoms you should uh, you should worry about and uh, rectal bleeding may vary from bright red blood, which is of small volume, which is often due to piles or hemorrhoids and usually occurs when you wipe your bottom or around the stool, but it's not that significant. But it's still, depending on your age, you should still have it checked out. But if you pass profuse amounts of red or maroon blood, or if you pass black tarry stools, then this indicates something's going on and something serious could be afoot. And you worry about things as a bleeding peptic ulcer, which we've discussed, diverticular disease, which we've discussed, ulcerative colitis or Crohn's of the colon, or more worrying, a cancer, cancer of the colon. So rectal bleeding should be taken note of, um, especially especially depending on the age of the patient. So over 40, uh, that's the time to be really, really concerned about it. But as I say, smears of uh, bright red blood is often due to piles or hemorrhoids, and, but uh, doctors still, still should be consulted and he can make the decision. But the patient should worry with significant rectal bleeding.
1: Okay, thank you. And something I think just to emphasize before we go was the screening colonoscopy, screen for colon uh, polyps, and for colon cancer, we can prevent this and catch it early. And uh, as you said, from the age of 50 years uh, upwards, unless you have
2: someone in your family. Absolutely. There yeah. And there just, are just a couple of uh, uh, red flags that should be noted as well to empower the patients is, A change in bowel habit is important. So if you start having alternating diarrhea and constipation, then you should worry. Unexplained weight loss. If you start losing weight without a reason, then you should be investigated. If patients start feeling exhausted and have been found to have an iron deficiency anemia, they should also be uh, investigated for blood loss. And then unexplained vomiting. Vomiting is a worrying symptom of upper gastrointestinal problems, difficulty in swallowing, and lastly, nocturnal diarrhea. So these are sort of the, the the seven red flags or seven worrying symptoms that patients should take note of. But the most important being blood in the stool and change in bowel habits in addition to the others as well. Right. Thank you, Dr. Ian
1: Berkowitz, for joining us on Dysk Medical Monday. and um, It's been great chatting to you. I've really enjoyed this interview. And thank you to our yes. guests for joining us. Please join us next week again. All right. Thank you for joining us. Please join us next week again at 10 o'clock, and Medical Monday. Thanks again, Dr. Ian Berkowitz, who is at NetCare Park Hospital. Thank you very much for joining
2: yes. us. Thanks, Dean. Thanks so much for the opportunity. Thank you. Yes.